Take your Bibles this morning and go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to read verses verse 20 through 9 verse 17 here in a little bit. Um, this is the next stop on our verse-by-verse walk through uh, the book of Genesis in a series that we've entitled Foundations. Now we did look at the end of chapter 8 last week, uh, but we're going to look at it again today briefly. I want to revisit it and then we'll get into chapter 9 and see how, um, how it flows into how chapter 8 flows right into the narrative of chapter 9. All right, kids out there, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, this right here on my hand, this ring, um, what does this, what is this ring? What kind of ring, I should say? What is this, kids? A marriage ring, a wedding ring, okay? Now, what is the purpose? What's the purpose of a wedding ring? To show that I'm married, right? It is a, um, does, the, does the ring make me married? No, okay, it, but it shows, it is a, a sign or a symbol that, that demonstrates that I'm married. Okay, it is actually a token or a pledge or, as you said, a sign that demonstrates the covenant commitment that, I, that a husband has with a wife and a wife has with a husband. Now, the reason I'm pointing it out here this morning is because in today's text, God is going to make a covenant commitment to Noah and to all of creation, and he's going to seal that covenant commitment with a sign, with a symbol. A lot of, I've done several weddings, and I'll actually ask sometimes when that moment in the wedding comes, when there's the exchange of rings, I'll ask the groom or I'll ask the bride, do you have a token of your covenant commitment to so-and-so? And then they will present the ring. So it is a token, it is a pledge, it is a sign. Now this token that I have of my marriage commitment to Heather certainly enables others to see that I'm married, but primarily it reminds me of my covenant commitment to my wife. Uh, Not that I forget that I'm married, but rather it reminds me to be faithful to the promises I made to her, promises to love and cherish her for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Until death do us part. Well, as I said, as we come to today's text, at the end of today's passage, we see a beautiful token, a pledge, a sign of a different covenant. An everlasting covenant between God and all of mankind. An everlasting covenant between God and every single person in this room. And an everlasting covenant between God and all of creation. Now, before we get to that, though... At the end of today's text, I want to remind us of some of the amazing things we've seen in the first several chapters of this book. It all began with God and nothing else. Then we saw God create all things in only six days, culminating with the formation of human beings whom he created in his image. And to whom he gave the commission to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over, that is to manage his world. Adam and Eve were those first humans created. And they were in a perfect garden temple as they dwelt with God. They were God's perfect people in God's perfect place under God's perfect rule. Unfortunately, the perfection was short-lived as the man and the woman willfully rebelled against God, resulting in their corruption and their spiritual death. As a consequence 
uh, of, the, of that sinful action, all of creation fell under the consequences of sin, under the curse of God. And all of Adam and Eve's descendants would be born spiritually dead and alienated from God. On top of all that, Adam and Eve were evicted from the protected environment of the garden and were sent to live in a world that would resist their efforts to subdue it and to manage it. And it didn't take long for the proof of their sinful state to show itself in their offspring. As the one, Cain, rose up against the other, Abel, and killed him. And from that moment forward, there was a pattern of depravity that spiraled out of control with the multiplication of the human race. Eventually, things reached such a state that every intention of the human heart was only evil all the time. So in response, God determined that he was going to blot out people and every living creature from the face of the earth. He decided to effectively uncreate the world that he had created through a flood. He was going to uncreate the world by blotting it out through a flood. Now, this could have been the end of all things. Except that God had made a promise back in Genesis 3.15. A promise to set apart a people for himself. A promise to deliver mankind from Satan's clutches. And a promise that an offspring of the woman would come, would emerge, who would be a final deliverer. And so even though God justly determined to blot out sinful mankind, God graciously kept his promise. And as one commentator put it, God pruned back the tree of humanity to one skinny branch, Noah and his sons. And now, after the uncreation of the flood, God ushers in a new beginning with Noah. And that's where we pick things up. So please stand now as we read Genesis chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 20. We're going to read all the way to chapter 9, verse 17. So Genesis 8, uh, beginning in verse 20. Down to chapter 9, uh, nine, verse 17. We stand because we believe this is God's infallible, inerrant word. These are words of truth. This has the same authority. It's as if Jesus in the flesh were standing here speaking to us. This is the word of God to us. We stand on every promise from his word, including the promises here in this portion of his word. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord... And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I'll require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, 
and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning and we ask that you would give us the grace To stand on every promise that's in your word. We're fooling ourselves if we think we have in and of ourselves the ability to believe and trust in and continue to depend upon your promises. We need your help. We need your grace. Lord, I thank you for the promises contained in this passage of scripture. And I thank you for the greater promises that they point to. So help us now, Lord, to have ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was in orchestra, yes, I used to be in orchestra. I played the trumpet. When I was in orchestra and we'd be playing a piece and we would mess up, our conductor would often say something like this. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Let's take it again from the top, from the top. Meaning, let's start fresh. Let's begin again. As Noah and his family emerged from the ark, and that's where the text today begins, in verse 20 of chapter 8, they, they are, they've just stepped out of the ark. So as Noah and his family emerge from the ark, it's almost as if God is saying, okay, let's take it from the top. Let's take it from the top. Let's start over. And this new start begins with a renewed commitment in God's heart toward creation. So that's our first point this morning. It's simply this. After the flood, we see God renew his commitment to mankind and all of creation. And we see this in the first few verses, the last verses, I should say, of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and, uh, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now last week... We talked about Noah's worship, what he's doing here. And we talked about how that was a response to God's saving work. So I don't want to spend too much time there again on this verse. Let's look instead at God's response to Noah's worship in verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that simply means that that the Lord accepted this offering. It was pleasing to him. What Noah was offering up was pleasing to him. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart... I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So in these verses, we have God's commitment to mankind and to all living creatures and to the earth to preserve it. God is now making a commitment that he's going to preserve the earth. Technically, this is not a promise that God is making to Noah. We'll see that later in the text today. We'll see that in chapter 9, verses 8 and following. If you look at the text here, it says that God said this in his heart. So what's happening here is that Moses is giving us an insight into God's heart and God's mind. The Lord said in his heart, in his heart, God has made a commitment to man and to creation. And we read this amazing commitment of God continues toward man and toward creation despite the fact that man's depravity continues. Man's sin continues. We see real quickly that though the flood may have uncreated the world, the flood could not eliminate sin. That's the point of verse 21. Let me read it again. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Listen to this. For. God's saying, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, the flood didn't get rid of sin. That wasn't the design of the flood. God resolves to not flood the earth again because or for no matter how many times that the canvas of this earth is blotted out by water, the problem of sin would continue so long as man continued. Notice that man's predisposition towards sin is not learned It's inherited. God says in his heart that man is evil from his youth. It's in man's nature. It's in man's heart to sin. The flood could wipe the earth clean, but it couldn't wipe the human heart clean. Noah knew immediately that the flood had not done away with sin. It had not made all things new. That's why the first thing he does when he exits the ark is to go build an altar and take some clean animals and offer burnt offerings. His act of worship involves the shedding of animals' blood, which means his act of worship involved a plea for God to forgive sin. Sin doesn't disappear when the waters abate. Yet God's heart remains committed to creation, irrespective of man's sin. He states that life will continue and he will faithfully guarantee the stable conditions needed for life to flourish. Look at verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's faithfulness continues even though man's sin continues. But we need to see that the fact that man's sin continues actually has redemptive purposes because the flood couldn't deal with sin instead it's pointing us to a greater deliverance still needed as Deemer has said before and reminded me again last night everything in the old testament like everything else in the old testament i should say our hopes are briefly raised by the story here and then we are quickly let down Our hopes are raised that Noah can be the deliverer and that everything's going to be better. And then when they get off that ark, there's not going to be any more sin. And just like every other story in the Old Testament, our hopes are raised and then we are soon let down. The world is cleansed by the floodwaters and immediately our hopes are dashed as Noah steps off the ark. 
We are left wanting more, and that's by design. It's pointing us to something greater. It's pointing us to a greater cleansing. The the story of the world being cleansed by a flood leaves us wanting hearts to be cleansed by something greater. It leaves us wanting something more. It points us to the one that we celebrate with these candles that are lit over here, the one that we come to worship every Sunday. You see, Noah was a type of Christ. Means he was a foreshadowing of Christ. He was a type of Christ. Noah was a typical redeemer. Typical, I mean, he was a type. Noah was a typical redeemer. Everyone um, with Noah on the ark was saved. And that points to the fact that everyone in Christ is saved. Noah was not the redeemer, he was a typical redeemer, providing. Typical, temporary redemption for his family. Jesus, the final redeemer, came to provide eternal redemption for all those in his family. Noah was a typical rest giver. Everyone with Noah on the ark um, received rest from what was happening outside the ark. As we said before, Noah's name means rest. His father had named him rest, saying, This one shall bring us relief or rest from our work. And from the painful toil of our hands. But Noah only gave typical rest. For the remainder of the Bible bears witness to the ongoing need for redemptive rest. Jesus is the one who finally and fully gives rest to the people of God. And to creation that was brought under the curse at the fall. He is the one, Jesus, who said in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you what? Rest. He is the one, Jesus, who according to Galatians 3.13 takes the curse on himself demonstrated as he wore the crown of thorns, the symbol of the cursed ground. So as we read the story of Noah's ark and Noah and his family coming off the ark, we are left wanting more. Because we are, we are, it's designed for us to be left wanting Jesus. So we see from today's text that despite the fact that sin remains in man and on the earth, God's commitment to the earth remains. That is because God is committed to his plan to one day fully and finally cleanse the earth of sin through his son, Jesus Christ. He is committed to Christ. The reason God is committed to man in Genesis chapter 8 is because God is committed to his son, Jesus Christ. Who is yet to come on the scene in this story here today. But we see something else after the flood. After the flood we see God reaffirm his commission to mankind and all of creation. So not only do we see him renew his commitment to mankind. We see God reaffirm his commission to mankind. Here is where we see the, some of the recreation language really emerging in this text. Genesis 9 verses 1 through 8 uh, share some very remarkable parallels to Genesis 1. Verses 28 through 30. So it, it also contains, I should say, some very notable differences as well. So let's compare the two passages and we'll see the similarities and we'll see the differences emerge. So I'm going to bring up on the screen here uh, Genesis 1, 28. And we're only going to read through verse 29. Genesis 1, 28 through 29. So you can kind of follow along and see where the parallels are. Look at the first verse here. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve... And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So let's, let's pause right there. 
Now look at Genesis 9, verse 1. What does it say? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a repetition of the same commission. And we see even in the text today that commission restated in verse 7. Verse 7 says, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. There's a literary structure going on here from, from verse 1 to verse 7. It's, 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 it's creating this, this little um, parenthesis, if you will, so that everything in between those two verses is included in this one unit about God's recreation. So in today's text, Noah stands out as sort of a new Adam. Noah is a new Adam receiving the same blessings and the same commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This tells us something. That not only does God's commitment to mankind, as we saw earlier, uh, remain, but so too does his purposes for mankind remain. His commitment to mankind remains and his purposes for mankind remains the same before the flood and after it, pre-sin and post-sin. And his purpose is that mankind, as his image bearers, spread his glory across the face of the earth, that they be multiplied and spread across the face of the earth. What is the chief end of man? That's the, the question that the catechism asks. If you were in Bible study this morning, you already heard us answer this question. What is the chief end of man? So someone not in Bible study this morning, answer it. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That was man's purpose pre-fall, pre-flood, and is man's purpose post-fall, post-flood. It's God's purpose for mankind as his image bearers to spread his glory across the face of the earth, to glorify him in all things. Now we see another similarity here in man's commission to rule over and subdue the earth. Look at verse 28 again. It continues. So not only are Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, it says also about the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now look at verse 2 of today's text. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. So now we see the first major difference between the pre-flood and post-flood commission. Pre-flood, pre-sin, The subduing of the earth was easier. It was natural. It was the way God designed it to be. Adam was simply commanded to do it, and he could do it. But sin, as we said, remains after the flood. And sin has damaged man's relationship with the rest of creation. So that now the only way man can subdue the earth um, is if the living creatures are indwelled with fear and dread of human beings. Prior to the fall... The authority that man had over creation was administered harmoniously. But now it must be administered with hostility. The creatures now have to be delivered into our hands by God because they will no longer willfully submit. Sin has brought discord between man and creation. And we see again that the flood hasn't fixed the problem. The flood didn't fix the problem. The flood and then the recreation of the flood were never designed to fix this problem. We are again left wanting more. 
We are again left yearning for a better recreation, a new creation yet to come. And so this recreation here in Genesis chapter 8 and 9 is a typical recreation. It's a type pointing to a greater recreation, a new creation yet to come. And the prophets all spoke of this new creation. And I'm just going to highlight one passage from Isaiah 11. Verse 6, and by the way, Isaiah 11, verse 1 is a, is a common um, passage we use at Christmas time. It talks about the one who's coming, who is the stump of Jesse. The coming of Jesus will usher in a new creation. And here's what it says in verse 6 of chapter 11 of Isaiah. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So, so listen, now it sounds more like the first creation in which it's easy now. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The prophet Isaiah knew that the ultimate recreation, the new heavens and the new earth could only be brought about through the redemptive work of the one called the stump of Jesse that he mentioned earlier in the passage. And so Genesis 8 and 9 is meant to point us to Jesus. Isaiah is meant to point us to Jesus. And at the end of that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, the rest of verse 9, it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Yes, there's man's mandate to fill the earth with the glory of God being fulfilled. When? In the new heavens and the new earth yet to come. I want to continue with the similarities between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. Look at verse 29 here on the screen. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So there's a food mandate given to Adam and Eve. Now, similarly, in chapter 9, verse 3, we have another command regarding food, but this time it's quite different. Verse 3 of chapter 9, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now, for those in here, of us in here who are meditarians, this is good news, right? <laughs> it's good, all right? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad about this one. But, but why has God now expanded the menu? Why has he expanded the menu to include animals? What a stunning difference the situation is now than it was at the very beginning with Adam. In his pre-fallen state, Adam would have been shocked to imagine that any of the animals that he had so lovingly and carefully named being slain for food. So again... What's seen in the slaying of the animals for food is, again, sin's destructive effects. The deadly effect of sin still remains. The flood couldn't get rid of it. Now, there's much speculation here as to why God now allows man to eat meat, besides the fact that steak just tastes really good, all right? There, there's, there's other speculation here as to why, why is God now allowing this? Some believe it's due to the different... The atmospheric conditions on the earth after the flood and man's lifespan is now dramatically reduced. And so therefore he needs more protein in his diet. Or perhaps uh, now that, that because of sin, uh, man needs to see that the sustenance for his life 
needs to come through the death of another. But I think there's something even more important that we need to see. The eating of meat would now serve as a precursor to the eating of the sacramental and ceremonial redemptive meals, such as the Passover. There were no vegetarians in the Old Covenant people of God. Do you realize that? Sorry if you're a vegetarian in here. There were no vegetarians. You were commanded to eat the Passover. Why? There were no vegetarians in the Old Covenant people of God because God was foreshadowing something in those sacrificial meals. He was foreshadowing the spiritual eating of the flesh and blood of his son that we read of in John chapter 6. If man had not been allowed to eat meat at this point in the redemptive story, then the eating of the sacrificial meals symbolizing the spiritual eating of the flesh of the Son of God by faith would have been an unintelligible concept. And the Lord's Supper would be an unintelligible sign. God, by allowing animals to be killed for food, was preparing his people for what would come as the history of redemption continued to unfold. In other words, the eating of animals also points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. You can't walk through any passage of Scripture without it pointing to Jesus, even the fact that God puts animals on the menu. The fact that God put animals on the menu points to Jesus. In the first creation, the mandate was to to eat was accompanied by one restriction. What was the one restriction accompanying the the mandate in, in the first creation? Not to eat of one thing, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, so too in this recreation mandate, there's one restriction, verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Blood, as the source and symbol of animate life, was significant. It was given by God, and it was not to be regarded lightly or handled callously. Animal blood could be spilled for food, but not consumed as food. The blood of animals was to be set apart, reserved for worship. Blood is precious in God's sight. And if animal blood was precious, how much more human blood? Verse 5. And for your lifeblood, that is man's blood, I'll require a reckoning. That means an accounting. From every beast I'll require it and from man. From his fellow man I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. So whether an animal or another man takes the life of a human, a reckoning, an accounting is required. So in today's text, um, there's... There's two lawful reasons established for the killing of animals. Number one, for food. And number two, if they kill a human. And God requires that the life of any man who intentionally spills the blood of another man be taken. There is nothing like this in the commission at the first creation because it was totally unnecessary. But now in this recreation, it is necessary because again, sin remains. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. By man shall his blood be shed. What we have here in very seminal form are the earliest traces of the idea of a civil magistrate, of the power of the sword to restrain evil and to protect life. Why? Why does God give that, that authority to man? For, it says, for God made man 
in his own image. The mandate is given because man is made in the image of God. An attack on man is a thinly veiled attack on God. Homicide, suicide, infanticide, which includes abortion, are all violent acts against God himself. We don't oppose abortion solely because it's the taking of innocent babies' lives. We oppose abortion as gospel-believing Christians because it is an attack on God, as is every form of taking of human life. And so, God's passion for his own image and the protection of his image bearers ties directly in his mandate for us to multiply and spread across the earth. Verse 7 And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. If murderers were not put to death, then mankind would have a very difficult time being fruitful and multiplying. Let me say something else. The institution of the death penalty here in Genesis chapter 9 has other redemptive purposes as well. For God would save his people by himself undergoing the death penalty. Though he did nothing to deserve death, he stood in the place of his people who did. If there were no death penalty, we would not be saved. Jesus died the death of a murderer so that we might be redeemed. And so we see in this recreation that many provisions still had to be made for sin. That's because this new creation is, as I said earlier, just a typical new creation. It points to a new creation yet to come. Where sin is abolished and death shall be no more. Remember, Noah was a type of Christ. He was not only a typical redeemer and a typical rescuer. He was also a typical second Adam. He was not the second Adam. Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that Jesus is the second and last. He's the eschatological Adam who redeems his people and fulfills all the creation mandates. The cleansed world into which Noah and his family stepped... When the waters receded was a type of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwell. The Apostle Peter speaks of those new heavens and new earth in 2 Peter chapter 3. It will only come when the second Adam, Jesus Christ, returns. But new creation begins now in the hearts of God's people the moment they are saved. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus took God's wrath on behalf of those who are in him by faith. And at that moment of profession of faith, that new birth has occurred and new creation has begun. And so now in Christ, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply has much less to do with physically having children, but with sharing the gospel so that others might be born again. The mandate now continues in that very same passage in 2 Corinthians 5. And we talked about this in Bible study today, and I wish I had more time to talk about it now. But in that very same passage, we are called to be ambassadors For Christ, we are to take the message of reconciliation to the world. Why? Because that's how we, now in the new covenant, in the new creation, as new created beings, that's how we spread the glory of God across the face of the earth. Is we tell everyone how to be reconciled to God. Have godly offspring, yes. Share the gospel, that's more important. That's more important. And so now... The great commission to make disciples is the means by which God's glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. So we've seen from the text today that God renewed his commitment to mankind and all of creation. A commitment that points us to his commitment to Christ. Secondly, we saw God reaffirm his commission for mankind. A commission that can only be fulfilled in and through Christ. And finally, 
After the flood, we see God reveal his covenant to mankind and all of creation. What we have in the covenant that we're about to read is God ratifying his commitment to man and establishing the parameters by which man will be able to carry out his commission. The covenant was first promised in chapter 6, verse 18, and here we have the establishment of it. There are three things I want us to see real quickly here. We can, By the way, I really struggled this morning. I woke up and felt like, man, this could really be like three sermons. But I'm going I'm to go through this and, and, and try to finish out this section here this morning. But there's so much here and there's so much more we could talk about. But there's three parts here to the covenant. Number one, there are the parties or the sharers of the covenant. Number two, there is the promise or the substance of the covenant. And number three, there is the pledge or the sign of the covenant. All right? The sign of the covenant. Genesis 9, 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. With who? Number one, you and your offspring after you. So that includes you and me. And two, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So it's pretty clear. The parties of the covenant, it's emphasized over and over in the scripture. It's, it's mankind of all time, everywhere, you and me included, and all of creation. And, and to make it clear, uh, this is repeated over and over again in this passage. The covenant is described in verse 12 as being between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And then verse 13, the covenant is between me and the earth. Then look at verse 15. The covenant is described as being between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And again, in verse 16, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And as if we don't get it yet, he says it again in verse 17, the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we call this the Noahic covenant, but really it's a covenant with creation. Do we get the point? The Noahic covenant is a perpetual, eternal covenant with all creation for all time. It maintains the conditions necessary for the Messiah to come. Just as through the salvation and redemption of Noah, all creation was saved. So, through, so too, through the covenant with Noah, all creation is blessed. So the parties of the covenant are all of mankind, of all time, and all creation. And the promise of the covenant is found in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And it's restated in verse 15. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy the earth. What God had stated in his heart back in chapter 8, verse 21, he now proclaims in a solemn oath. That's what a covenant is. It's a solemn oath. This had to be encouraging to Noah because he knew that he was still a sinner. And he knew that sin remained in the world. Without this covenant promise, he may have been left perpetually wondering when the next flood was about to happen. The sin problem wasn't dealt with, though, in this covenant. So, again, as we read this covenant, we are left hoping for a better covenant. Moses and all the prophets point to a better covenant. A covenant that will not only redeem man, but will also bring redemption to the whole earth. Hosea chapter 2 verse 18 speaks of that better covenant yet to come. The prophet Hosea says, And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down and safely. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. That is a promise of the new covenant that comes 
in Jesus Christ. These words speak of a covenant that was only foreshadowed here by the Noahic covenant. They speak of the new covenant in which all of creation experiences final restoration and final peace through the redemption of God's people. Romans 8, verses 19 to 23 teaches us that all creation benefits from the redemption of the sons of God. So back to today's text, and we're bringing this into a close now. We have the parties or the sharers of the covenant. We have the promise or the substance of the covenant. And finally, we have the pledge or the sign of the covenant. So I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the ring here is a sign of a covenant, a marriage covenant. So here's the sign of this covenant, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Notice that that the covenant sign is designed so that God would remember. It's not that God is capable of forgetting. Remember, just as God remembered Noah in the ark in chapter 8, verse 1, God's remembrance refers to his faithfulness and his commitment to act upon his covenant promises. So the sign shows us God's faithfulness to act on our behalf, to keep his word. Now, when God establishes a sign to accompany his covenants, the signs always communicate something about the covenants. Okay, so the ring here. Well, what do what preachers always say when they give the ring to the husband and the wife? What, is, what does the ring symbolize? Come on, husbands, you've got to know this. What does it symbolize? Okay, wives, help your husbands out. What does the ring symbolize? Okay, the, the eternal nature of your love, right? The, your, the continuous nature, the unbreakable love you have for this person. So it's supposed to be unbreakable. Husbands, this is a sign of the unbreakable commitment to your wife. Okay, put that in a greeting card in a few months from now and she'll love it. All right? So the the sign always means something. So same thing here. Okay, there's been lots of speculations here about this idea of a bow. Why, Why a rainbow? What does it mean? Well, certainly the rainbow symbolizes, is connected to rain. And so when it's in the clouds, it's a reminder that the flood, that God will no longer flood the earth as he did before. But I think there's more. And I sincerely believe that I'm not wandering into speculation here. Most English translations translate bow in this text as rainbow. But in the Hebrew, it's actually simply the word bow, which is the same word used to refer to the weapon called a bow, such as in bow and arrow. Several texts in the Psalms and in the Minor Prophets describe God as a warrior who bends his bow against the, in wrath against sinners. Now consider how the flood was an awesome demonstration of the wrath of God. I said two sermons ago that outside of the cross of Christ, there's no greater demonstration of the wrath of God against sin than the flood. And so, at the end of this judgment, God promises that he's never again going to destroy the, destroy the world in this way. And so what does he do to give a sign of that promise? He takes his bow, his weapon of judgment, and he lays his weapon down, so to speak. This is the symbolism of God's bow. It is a weapon of war, of wrath, and of judgment. But now it becomes a symbol of peace, no longer pointing toward the earth, but instead pointing heavenward, away from the earth. If indeed this is God's weapon of war, turned from the earth and pointing heavenward, then it is not significant 
to note that in the sending of his son to die on the cross, God was indeed turning his wrath upon himself. He was turning his wrath upon himself in the person of his own son, taking an arrow into his own heart, as it were, to accomplish the salvation of his people. And so it is that just as the bow was a weapon of war that became a symbol of God's covenant promises, so too the cross of Christ as an instrument of pain and death now becomes a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness and a picture of reconciliation that he has brought about in the new covenant through the Lord Jesus, our Savior. So as we conclude this morning, I want that to be in our minds. The cross. Because we're concluding today, not just with a song, not just with a prayer, we're concluding with the Lord's table. As one of the signs of the new covenant, the better covenant in Christ, this too communicates something powerful. God's wrath was poured out upon his son, and his son shed his blood for his people. God's wrath was poured out on his son, and his son's body was nailed to an old rugged cross. And in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, Jesus, Jesus purchased new life. He made new creatures out of those who placed their faith in him. And he also guaranteed the ushering in of a new creation. It begins now in the hearts of believers. But when Christ returns and the, ju- and the earth is finally and fully judged, and sin will be wiped from the earth at that time. Sin will be eradicated from those who are in Jesus because Jesus will have taken their sin upon himself. And the rest will be separated from God forever, eternity, in a place called hell. But sin will once and for all be eradicated from the earth in the new heavens, in the new earth. So this morning as we come to the table for the believer, I want you to, to, when you think about the rainbow, think about the cross. Think about the cross. Don't let this world hijack the rainbow. Matter of fact, when you see people using the rainbow in obscene ways, think about the cross and think about the message of reconciliation that person needs to hear. Let it, let it point you towards Christ and, and give an impetus of missions in your heart. And for unbeliever here this morning, let the rainbow point you to the cross. And as, as the believers participate in this supper... And drink this fruit of the vine and drink and eat this bread. Let it be a testimony to you that Jesus Christ took the wrath of God. And if you will turn from your sin, place all your hope in him, you will be saved. You will be made a new creature. And you will be guaranteed to one day participate in a new heavens and a new earth where sin is finally and fully eradicated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that Noah's ark is not a simple story that you gave us so that we could entertain children in Sunday school. So that Hollywood could make a blockbuster movie. Noah's ark is a historical account that reveals so much about redemptive history to us and points us squarely to Jesus. And so as we come and we conclude the service this morning with the taking of the Lord's Supper, I pray, Father, that we would leave this place with our hearts squarely focused on Jesus. And for the rest of this Christmas season, a time in which the world so easily gets our eyes off of Jesus,
Let us have our eyes resolutely fixed on our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave up his blood and allowed his body to be broken so that we could be saved. And gloriously, he rose again, guaranteeing that we too have been raised to newness of life. So Jesus, we thank you for your work that you've done for us. Jesus, you are a better Noah. You are a final Adam. And in you, we place all our hope. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.